Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I am young. I am 20 years old. Yet I know nothing of life but despair, death, fear, and fatuous superficiality cast over an abyss of sorrow. I see how peoples are set against one another, and in silence, unknowingly, foolishly, obediently, innocently, slay one another. Eric Maria Remark, All Quiet on the Western Front. Matthias had made good progress. As his brother Rudolf II, Holy Roman Emperor, continued to deteriorate in his Prague home, Matthias assumed leadership of the Habsburg Austrian dynasty and now sought to garner support throughout the empire's lands. The Protestant estates of Upper Austria and the Hungarian provinces under Habsburg administration all acquired religious toleration in 1608, and in 1609 Matthias moved to bring the Bohemians to his side too. Although thoroughly Protestant, Bohemia had been ruled continuously by the Catholic Habsburgs as part of the Habsburg crown lands, and the kings of Bohemia were, more often than not, also Holy Roman Emperor, King of the Romans, and King of Hungary simultaneously. Matthias had changed the status quo somewhat, since he had begun stripping his ill-behaved brother Rudolf of his titles since 1606. Now isolated in Bohemia, all that Rudolf could lay claim to was the Bohemian crown lands, so Moravia, Silesia, and Lusatia. Matthias wished to fully exact his power over these lands too, and remove what he and his family saw as the damaging impact of Rudolf's influence over them. But he must have known that in order to get the Protestant Bohemians on side, he'd have to give them the same things he'd given the rest of his newly acquired subjects too promises of religious freedoms, toleration, and equality. While he was considering this though, Rudolf moved first, and granted his bohemian subjects what they wanted under the Letter of Majesty. The event is covered by David J. Sturdy in his book Fractured Europe 1600-1721. Quote, 
1608, Rudolf led an army towards Prague with the intention of forcing Rudolf to abdicate. On this occasion, however, Matthias failed to persuade the Bohemian Diet to support him. Most nobles, the majority of whom were Protestant, remained faithful to Rudolf. Unable to defeat his brother, Matthias negotiated a settlement whereby Rudolf formally ceded Hungary and Austria to Matthias, but remained king of Bohemia. Rudolf rewarded his Protestant Bohemian subjects, but in effect purchased their continuing loyalty by issuing the Letter of Majesty in 1609. It guaranteed their freedom to worship and the right to build churches, it conceded a wide range of rights to the Diet, and created a body of commissioners, called defensors, to supervise the implementation of the Letter. If anybody triumphed in 1609, it was the Protestant nobility of Bohemia. End quote. Thus Rudolf was able to cling to what remained of his domains, and Matthias became de facto king of Hungary and the Romans. The agreement though, though apparently enough to satiate the desires of the Bohemian people and appease their religious concerns, did nothing to heal the deep wounds now existing between the two brothers Matthias and Rudolf. Rudolf soon discovered that he was not really the king of Bohemia at all, as the so-called defensors, those commissioners designated to ensure he successfully carried out the provisions of the Letter of Majesty, often usurped his authority. By 1611, Rudolf had had enough of the defensors and called on his cousin Leopold of Austria to invade Bohemia and liberate him from his administrative prison. Leopold's attempts failed miserably against the defence of the defensors, who called on Matthias for help against his brother in January of 1611 when a force of 7,000 imperial soldiers marched into Bohemia. David Sturdy notes on these series of events that culminated in Matthias's unchallenged seizure of the Bohemian crown. Quote, in 1611, Rudolf attempted to break the stranglehold of the defensors by encouraging his cousin Leopold to invade Austria and liberate him. The enterprise misfired. Leopold's army was repulsed by the forces of the Bohemian Diet. The Diet declared that Rudolf had forfeited the loyalty of his subjects. It deposed him and offered the crown to his brother Matthias, on condition that he confirmed the letters of majesty. He agreed, and in May 1611 was crowned king of Bohemia. Rudolf died the following year. In the imperial election that followed, Matthias was chosen as Holy Roman Emperor. End quote. Almost immediately, Matthias was met with the issue of succession. Ruling without any direct heirs of his own, he would have to look to the Styrian branch of the Habsburgs in order to continue the Habsburg line of succession in the Holy Roman Empire. This line was led by Matthias's cousin, the staunchly Catholic Ferdinand, and over the coming years it would become more and more apparent that the crowns and titles of Matthias would fall to him. In 1611, Matthias finally cleared the air with his distant cousins across Europe the Spanish Habsburgs. In Spain, Philip III was continuing to lay claim to the crown of the Holy Roman Empire once Matthias died. Matthias did not want to see this succession. He wished to ensure the succession of his cousin Ferdinand, and did not think it wise to allow Philip of Spain to hold sway over all the Habsburg lands, as Charles V had done almost exactly 100 years before. In the years 1615 to 1617, the two distinct lines of the Habsburgs negotiated the future of their dynasty's holdings. Philip III, in time, came to realise that the assumption of all Habsburg lands were not within his power, and that to go directly against the wishes of the Austrian Habsburg line would be a cause for family conflict in the future. So, he endeavoured to seek a favourable compromise in the subsequent negotiations. 
The Ornate Treaty of July 29, 1617, was the outcome of this mutual Habsburg desire to negotiate. Philip III's priority was to be in a secure position upon the resumption of the war with the Dutch. Remember, this was during the Twelve Years' Truce that had brought about peace for a time between the Spanish and Dutch empires. To achieve this, Philip would have to make sure that the Spanish road, the series of routes from Spain's North Italian to South Netherlands possessions, were secure. In exchange for transferring the territories to the Spanish Habsburgs, Piombino, Correggio, and Finale Liguria along the Mediterranean coast of Italy, which made the Spanish road once again viable, Philip agreed to allow Ferdinand and his successors to inherit the Holy Roman lands and its affiliates. So long as Ferdinand did in fact win the Holy Roman election, and it was highly likely that he would, Philip promised to renounce his claims on Bohemia and Hungary. Matthias, on death's door, got an earful from his advisor and cardinal of Vienna, Melchior Kliesel, for giving so much to the Spanish and allowing the counter-reformation-minded Ferdinand to take the reins of the HRE, when Kliesel was trying so hard to pacify the Catholic-Protestant conflicts that had politically paralysed the HRE before. Kliesel noted that the Reichstag had been unable to convene in 1608 and 1613 because of the drastic polarisation between the Empire's two religious camps, and he also worried for the future of the Empire if it continued to splinter in the face of the Ottoman threat. A strong advocate for the separation of religion and politics, Kliesel would have known that he was on Ferdinand's hit list by the time Ferdi assumed his titles and crowns between the years 1617 to 1619. With the tacit approval of the Spanish, it appeared as though the succession of Ferdinand would go off without a hitch. The Bohemian Diet, by no means unaware of Ferdinand's reputation as a strict counter-reformist, would surely take some convincing though. As to the sincerity of Ferdinand's promises to uphold the letters of majesty implemented by Rudolf and then Matthias. C.W. Wedgwood, the legendary historian on the Thirty Years' War, makes an interesting point on the Kingdom of Bohemia itself. Quote, it remained to be seen whether, as in the crisis of 1609, the Bohemians would be able to stand together. The three guiding principles of nationalism, toleration, and democracy alike drew them away from Ferdinand, an Austrian, a Catholic, and a despot, but also drew them in three different directions. If religious liberty was their banner, they must join their cause to that of the German Protestants, already preparing to unite against Ferdinand. If popular government, then nobles and citizens must make common cause to thrust constitutional reforms on their future king. If nationalism, then the Bohemians must fly to open revolt and sacrifice all to the immediate necessities of war. The three points of view were each held by an approximately equal number of people throughout the country, but none was distinct enough to produce the alignment of a party. All outlines were blurred by private interests and local quarrels, with the dead weight of conservative timidity dragging behind. End quote. Although Wedgwood describes Ferdinand's religious and political views as notorious, and notes that, quote, no one doubted he would treat Protestantism and popular government in Bohemia with the same thoroughness he had used in Styria, end quote, his election as Bohemia's king still seemed inevitable. Yet Wedgwood's accounts of the Bohemian drama challenges this view somewhat, while it is both highly readable and incredibly interesting. Quote, the Emperor Matthias had been elected to the Bohemian throne on the deposition of his brother Rudolf II by a strong Protestant party within the country. He had disappointed that party, 
and by disappointing it had made the election of yet another Habsburg to succeed him very difficult. The situation was not hopeful for the Habsburg dynasty. Some of the family felt that Archduke Ferdinand was the last man who could safely be put forward. To say the least of it, he was hardly a ruler who would inspire confidence in a predominantly Protestant country, in edge with anxiety for its privileges. The Spaniards argued, justifiably, that to let Ferdinand stand was to court a defeat which might be disastrous for the dynasty. But what other candidate was there? The remaining archdukes were all too old to offer any permanent safety. The sons of the King of Spain, the eldest of them in his early teens, would be no less suspect to the Protestant Bohemians, and, as foreigners educated in Madrid, were even less likely to be popular than the Archduke Ferdinand, who at least spoke German and had visited Prague. The election of Ferdinand thus provided an occasion for the enemies of the Habsburgs in Europe to put forward a rival candidate. The necessity was apparent, but the candidate was lacking. End quote. However, historians are not unanimous on the opinion of the Bohemian's picture of Ferdinand. David Sturdy provides a different picture of Ferdinand's prospects. In Sturdy's case, however, he also considers not just the Bohemians, but also the Hungarians, who both possess their own diet, or elected assembly, and a majority Protestant population. Sturdy notes, quote, The torturous discussions whereby they persuaded the Bohemians to elect or accept Ferdinand in 1617, and the Hungarian diet to do so in 1618, need not detain us. Nevertheless, given that in both assemblies there was a Protestant majority, their choice of an avowed Catholic zealot does require explanation. The first point is that in each case the election was conditional upon Ferdinand's promise to safeguard the rights of his subjects including, in Bohemia's case, the Letter of Majesty. Ferdinand provided the necessary assurances, although his Jesuit confidence quietly informed him that he was not bound by commitments to heretics and given the benefit of the doubt by the Diets. After all, Bohemia and Hungary were not Styria, and it could not be presumed that in these large and diverse kingdoms he would simply replicate the religious policy which he had pursued in the smaller, more heterogeneous Styria. Podcast footnote. Styria, which my sources and myself have continued to refer to, was the administrative province within Inner Austria that Ferdinand began his rule over in 1595. Having been raised by the Jesuits in the spirit of Counter-Reformation Catholicism, and acquiring a uniquely negative view of Protestantism in the process, Ferdi spent the next decade removing all the Protestants within Styria, and acquiring for himself a beastly, fearfully intolerant reputation in the process. It was this reputation that cast such doubt upon his ability to fairly rule over any number of Protestant subjects, both from his soon-to-be subjects and his family members alike. End podcast footnote. The second point arises out of the elective nature of the two crowns. If Ferdinand did not adhere to his promises, but behaved as a tyrant, the Diets reserved the right to depose him and choose a different king. It was by such a process that Matthias replaced Rudolf as King of Hungary in 1608 and King of Bohemia in 1611. Thirdly, the two diets did not constitute solid voting blocs. Both contained factions gathered around powerful aristocrats defending family or regional interests. The Habsburgs, who had their own cabals in the diets, understood how these bodies operated and were adept in the necessary manipulative techniques. End quote. Although both historians disagree slightly on the nature of the Bohemian approval of Ferdinand as their king in 1617, what both do recognise is that Ferdinand, despite everything, did become king of Bohemia in 1617. 
He now set his sights on Hungary. So what's the deal with Bohemia, Zach, and why should I care? Well, history friend, you'll soon discover the importance of Bohemia in relation to the Thirty Years' War. But in simple terms, it was the Habsburgs' most important province. Wedgwood describes it as, quote, being in fact so rich in both agriculture and commerce that the total yields of its taxes covered more than half the total cost of the administration of the empire, end quote. A travelling English gentleman also remarked admirably on the kingdom, Everything that belonged to the use and commodity of man was and is there. Nature seemed to make the country her storehouse or granary. Geographically, Bohemia constitutes the bulk of the modern-day Czech Republic, and its population were Czechs then just as much as they are Czechs now. In nationalist terms, the Czechs provided a further example of this Holy Roman Empire's reach across the various ethnic peoples of Europe. The Czechs would not realise their desire for self-determination for another 300 years. But in 1618, the Czechs of Bohemia, an almost entirely Protestant part of the Holy Roman Empire, would have an impact on European history that can scarcely be understated. Election of Ferdinand in 1617, Matthias returned to Vienna to begin preparations for the election of his cousin to the Hungarian throne. He left Bohemia in the hands of a council of ten regents, of whom seven were Catholic, a clear misrepresentation of the Bohemian demographic to begin with, and Ferdinand hadn't even assumed control of Bohemia yet. With the council acting in the interests of the Catholic minority, and with the tacit support of Ferdinand while claiming to have the backing of Matthias, the Catholic-dominated council used its majority to challenge the Letter of Majesty guaranteed by Matthias and then Ferdinand. The most aggressive of the participants of the council were the Catholics Wilhelm Slavata, Zdenko Lobkowicz, and Jaroslav Martinitz, and this triumvirate began to seriously undermine the Protestant position in Bohemia beginning with the closure of numerous Protestant churches and the forced stoppage of their construction. Further, on any crown land that had been sold to the Catholic Church, Protestant churches could expect serious challenges to their continuing existence. When the Bohemian Regional Assemblies, or Estates, protested to the Council at these acts, the Council continued to ignore them, and in 1617 it ordered the arrest of the leading Protestants at Brumov, where one of the most notable closures of a Protestant church had occurred. The council then went one further when it ordered the destruction of the Protestant Church of Hroby, an additional church that had received particular attention from the council. Both of these events occurred in the north of the Kingdom of Bohemia, so not only did these ill-advised events occur in what was the most thoroughly Protestant region in Bohemia itself, but the acts of the obviously biased council flew so clearly in the face of the Letter of Majesty Matthias and Ferdinand were meant to be protecting not to mention the fact that Protestants could see no reason for the Catholic-dominated council to have any business intervening in a region they could clearly claim no religious support in. G. Pages, another eminent historian whose classic 1931 work, The Thirty Years' War, 1618-1648, was finally translated out of French to the benefit of us non-French-speaking historian enthusiasts in 1970, noted that the event concerning the churches was, quote, a senseless piece of violence that touched off the rebellion, end quote. 
However, Pages gives us an interesting account of Bohemia itself, and looks to what the Bohemian Protestants endured as they came to chafe under the administration of Zdenko Lobkowicz, one of the leading Catholics on the Council of Regents appointed by Matthias that we encountered earlier. Pages, for his part, really seems to believe in the impact of this old Bohemian nobleman, who is both staunchly Catholic and fiercely loyal to the Habsburgs. Pages notes on Lobskovich, quote, He set about the task of simplifying and centralising the administration of Bohemia in order to make the monarchy absolute. Naturally, he encountered stiff resistance, especially from the nobility. Though they were few in number, they were great landowners, possessing large estates and playing a leading part in the diets. End quote. Pages continues to comment on Lobkovich's policies and, if one may look at the situation objectively, their technical success. Quote, on the eve of the defenestration, it would seem that considerable progress had been made towards the centralization of the administration. We can certainly regard it as one of the causes of the discontent which made possible the early successes of the rebels. The knights and the townsmen too shared the nobles' dislike of Lobkovich's policy of administration. Moreover, despite their attachment to the crown, they were used to following the lead of the great nobles, whose privileges and ambitions were incompatible with the new powers sought by the king. End quote. Pages also sheds an interesting light on the religious situation of Bohemia. You may be wondering, if I keep referring to Bohemia as thoroughly Protestant, how do Catholic regions such as Lobkovich continue to keep finding the space to rule? Pages explains this, quote, In Bohemia especially, the Catholics were only a minority, but in terms of power, they easily had the upper hand. On their side, they had the king, the royal family, the grand chancellor, podcast footnote, who in this case was Lobkovich, and podcast footnote, most of the holders of high office, in fact the whole ruling class of the kingdom. Furthermore, this tightly knit, active community was hand in glove with the religious orders behind the Catholic Counter-Reformation. The Capuchins, who preached the Roman faith among the people, and the Jesuits, who chiefly influenced the nobles. Because of this kind of dual activity by the government and church, the number of converts increased rapidly, and the Catholic minority was certainly advancing it was easy to understand the Protestants' anxiety. End quote. After laying out the situation in Bohemia, that of a Protestant majority outmaneuvered by a Catholic minority, Pages then moves to the man who would become king of this region. Imagine the news. Your thoroughly Protestant homeland is about to be ruled by a Catholic king who has a less than stellar track record when it comes to dealing tolerantly with those of a different religious disposition in his lands. Indeed, when it came to the nature of Bohemia's crown, and whether it was in fact an elective crown or not, it seems as though the Habsburgs, Matthias among them, believed that by that stage the crown had become a hereditary institution, since his brother Rudolf, their father Maximilian II, and his grandfather Ferdinand I had all sat on the throne. This, the Bohemians argued, may be the case, but that was because they were all elected there in the first place. Pages notes that, quote, for Matthias's ministers, the Diet's nomination was only a solemn ratification of the candidate whose rights were hereditary. The Bohemians, however, were of another opinion, maintaining that the crown had always been elective. But it was not merely a legal question, and both parties were well aware of this. Ferdinand, whom the Catholics looked to for the complete victory of their faith, was for that very reason detested and feared by the Protestants. End quote. As I said, Ferdinand didn't possess the greatest track record. 
His governorship of Styria, located in Inner Austria, involved the widespread removal of the Protestant population from that region. And his success, if one could even call it that, in removing the Protestants from Styria, merely convinced Ferdi that he had been meant to do such a thing all along. Pages notes that, in Styria, quote, Ferdinand's recklessness in undertaking to convert back to Catholicism, a country in which there was no longer more than a handful of Catholics, is staggering. End quote. What were the Bohemians doing electing the guy as king then? Well, the histories are divided on the issue. Some argue it was Matthias who appealed to them, and Ferdinand appeared also to claim that he would genuinely uphold the letter of majesty. As we also saw, though, his Jesuit entourage assured him that lying to heretics was not the worst thing a would-be emperor could do, wink wink, nudge nudge. Pages takes another view, though. Again, focusing on the manipulative, but admirable because he seems to be doing pretty much everything important, character of Lobkovich, Pages writes that the election of Ferdinand as King of Bohemia on the 6th of June, 1617, quote, had been arranged by Lobkovich alone. Matthias was still wavering, and his minister, Bishop Kleisel, who had rendered his master real service in the early years, but had been overtaken by events and no longer sought to remain in power, avoided all compromising decisions. Lobkovich knew how to confound Ferdinand's enemies by swift action, arousing a temporary show of loyalty among the Bohemian nobles and profiting from their divisions. End quote. With a combination of manipulation, appearing to Bohemian's sense of nostalgia as a sick Matthias was carted in, and under a barrage of false promises, the Diet voted to elect Ferdinand as King of Bohemia. But the honeymoon, if it even lasted long enough to count as a honeymoon, didn't last long. As Pages notes, quote, In spite of the extraordinary ease with which it had been accomplished, Ferdinand's elevation to the throne could only increase the discontent. The nobles' leaders, who had given in to surprise and fear, certainly lost no time in recovering themselves and in reproaching themselves for their weakness. They were even more annoyed with Lobkovich, who had outwitted them, the more so because Lobkovich exploited his victory. Before and after Ferdinand's coronation, he took a series of measures which seemed to herald a new, bolder, and more active policy. End quote. This new policy included newer censorship laws regarding Protestant literature, a greater amount of power being delegated to the royal reps of the Habsburgs in Bohemia, and, as we saw, the question of crown lands being resold back to the Catholic Church. Building on this land was, apparently, made deliberately vague, since it seems that such an issue, which would take mere minutes to clarify and which had such potential to spark outrage among different communities, was a perfect bit of senseless violence that the situation needed. Now we go back to the Bohemians in early 1618, who, having just appealed to the council without result, moved to the next best thing. The Bohemian Protestants took their case higher, to Matthias himself. The Defensors, remember those commissioners appointed to ensure the implementation and protection of the Letter of Majesty in Bohemia, convened a meeting of the Estates in Prague in March 1618. Once the Assembly met, it made the decision to petition Matthias to redress the injuries done by his regents, while they also sent an appeal to Moravia, Silesia and Lusatia, all of whom were joined to Bohemia in an unofficial union, for support against these measures. Two weeks later, Matthias rejected the petition, declared the assembly illegal, and forbade it to meet again. Geoffrey Parker, in his book Europe in Crisis, 1598-1648, noted that, quote, This was certainly unconstitutional. 
The Letter of Majesty guaranteed the right of the Defensers to hold an assembly, and the Defensers therefore recalled their supporters to Prague in May 1618. End quote. While Wedgwood's account of the Habsburg justification for the halting of Protestant construction reads thus, quote, The government replied that, although Protestants were allowed to build on royal land, the Letter of Majesty did not prevent the king from alienating such land, that he in fact made a gift of this estate subsequently to the church, and that the rights of the Protestants had accordingly lapsed. End quote. Whatever the response of the government in this case, Matthias, now ailing and under the influence of his stronger willed cousin, impressed the Council of Regents with the instructions that further noise made about the nature of the lands could be met with force. The situation obviously was not an area that the defensers were meant to pursue, and yet they did. After returning to Prague in May, the defensers again convened an assembly and set out their major grievances. However, aside from those bohemian nobles who believed that the Letter of Majesty was genuinely under threat, it became difficult for the now designated leader of the bohemian defensers, Matthias of Thurn, to mobilise allies from further afield. Peter Wilson, in his book Europe's Tragedy, A History of the Thirty Years' War, takes a different stance on the escalation of events that, he believes, Thurn played a major part in. Quote, in the absence of dissenting voices, it became easy to convince those at the Assembly of March 1618 that the entire Letter of Majesty was under threat. A petition was dispatched to Matthias, and the Assembly agreed to reconvene on May 21st to discuss his reply. Cleasel saw Thurn's relative isolation as a chance to demonstrate royal resolve, writing a sharp letter forbidding the Assembly from reconvening. While Cleasel wielded the stick, Matthias offered the carrot, promising to return to Bohemia to discuss the situation. Cleasel's letter was delivered through the regents as the Crown's local representatives. Thurn seized on this to rally wider support, since it was easier to attack the regents as evil advisers than to openly defy either Ferdinand or Matthias. He persuaded the defensers that Cleasel's letter breached the letter of majesty, and ensured pastors used the Sunday sermon to announce that the delegates would reconvene to debate the Catholics' secret tricks and practices that were undermining the unity of the kingdom. End quote. Another source I've roped in for you guys disagrees with this assessment of events here by Wilson. David Milland, in his book Europe at War, 1600-1650, notes on the straw that broke the camel's back in the defensor's case. Quote, the Protestants claimed their rights under the Letter of Majesty, summoned a diet, and elected men to write in protest to Matthias. From Vienna, Lavkovich replied that the defensers had exceeded their powers, but so swift was the reply that the Protestant diet refused to believe that it was anything but a fabrication by the regents to justify their actions. End quote. This incredible story of being fortunate enough to receive such a swift postal service that they did not believe its contents is in fact a relatively common one. Pages also notes a similar story to the one reported by Milland. Quote, the royal reply, which had probably been drawn up in Vienna on Lobkovich's orders, stated that the defensers had exceeded their powers, that the matter was outside the Protestant Assembly's jurisdiction, and that it was forbidden to meet again. It even contained some thinly veiled threats against the agitators. The question of law was, in any case, unimportant. What struck the defensers when the reply to the letter was delivered to them was the speed with which it had come. They became quite convinced that it was not authentic, that it had not been drawn up in Vienna, but in Prague itself, 
and that the regents were therefore responsible for it. They did not for a single moment consider cancelling the meeting called for the 21st of May. End quote. To clarify, the meeting of the 21st of May would be the third time the Assembly convened in such a manner. The previous conventions of the Diet merely served as a method of appealing as a body to Vienna. But was conflict really about to erupt in the HRE simply because their postal service was so bad that they didn't believe it when it actually performed well? Not necessarily. Certainly, the defensers were suitably enraged by what they saw as the continued mockery of their situation by the regents to plan vigorously for their next meeting on the 21st of May, 1618. But the defensers would surely have pressed their case further whatever the reply of Matthias, so long as it continued to be in the negative, and whoever the defensers believed it had come from. Wedgwood makes the point that, quote, Had the king any right to alienate such land without the subject's consent? The Protestant Bohemians thought not, and thought it the more emphatically that Matthias in the course of the last five years had in this way restored 132 parishes to the jurisdiction of the Archbishop of Prague alone. End quote. The defensors, in my opinion, would have convened the meeting on the 21st of May either way, because they are aware of Ferdinand's increasing influence on their country in his various censorship laws, and laws regarding the power of Habsburg agents that seem to increase the Habsburg presence in daily bohemian affairs. They were well sick and tired, as G. Pages has made us aware, of the meddling effects of the Habsburg agent Lobkovich. They were no doubt a tad concerned at the Habsburg determination to shut down their attempts to properly voice their concerns. The first attempts, it should be pointed out, at exercising their right to convene such an assembly under the terms of the Letter of Majesty. But additionally, the defences of Bohemia were likely torn between wanting to believe that Ferdinand would uphold the Letter of Majesty, and that their lives could continue in the cultural and predominant splendour it had done under Rudolf and Matthias, and fearing so deeply of a repeat of Ferdinand's character in his governments of their kingdom. As much as they wanted to believe him, Ferdinand had hardly made it easy, and aside from merely parroting what Matthias begged him to part while trying to get the Bohemians' vote in 1617, he spoke not one word of reassurance to them regarding their concerns at religious and relative political autonomy. Furthermore, since the election, he hadn't even visited Prague. The accounts differ as to who is to blame for the preceding violence. Was it Matthias, Ferdinand and his Council of Catholic Regents, who sent stiff letter after stiff letter back to Thurinus's associates, all the while refusing to listen to their grievances? Or was it the fault of the Protestant defensers led by Thurn, who had forcibly radicalised the populace in order to justify their subsequent actions? Wilson appears to support the former position when he writes, quote, Thurn and his associates to fight another, more conciliatory order from the regents to disband, and whipped up passions by claiming that the regents intended to arrest them. It was time, Thurn declared, on the 22nd of May, to throw them out of the windows, as is customary. End quote. Wedgwood, on the other hand, makes no reference to the conciliatory tone of the regents' correspondence with the Bohemian defensers. Instead, he states, quote, In spite of Catholic propaganda, the meeting assembled, on 21st of May, a formidable gathering of noblemen, gentry, and burghers from all over the province. The imperial governors in vain commanded them to dissolve. Only then did Slavata and Martinez grasp the danger in which they stood, and on the evening of the 22nd, a secretary of state escaped in disguise towards Vienna to implore immediate help. End quote. 
while David Sturdy merely notes that, quote, The defenders called an assembly of Protestant nobles to Prague in 1618 to draw up formal representations to be sent to Matthias in Vienna. Matthias rejected the remonstrances and ordered the assembly to disband. End quote. The defenders, though, did not disband, and they received what was Matthias's real reply to their demands, as they perceived it on the 21st of May from the Habsburg agents at Radzian Castle. When the defenders went to the castle to receive the letter, they promised they'd be back by the 23rd of May to deliver their verdict. The defenders were telling the truth in this case. They would be back indeed on that day, although the verdict they deliver then was unlike the kind that the Habsburgs or anyone else in the castle had been expecting. Interestingly, although they are my oldest sources, both Pages and Wedgwood both give the best account of the actual defenestration of Prague itself. And, because I feel that, although this episode is focused solely on Bohemia already, the defenestration is such a symbolically and politically important event, as it forms a preview of what's to come, giving it the attention it deserves is honestly justified. In short, the defenders were whipped into a frenzy while discussing the contents of Matthias's letter on the 22nd of May. Some say by Thurn, though no historian is divided on Thurn's guiding hand over the event's crucial hours. These defenders in great number stormed through the streets of Prague the next day, attracting the attention of the populace who soon gathered in an excited crowd and followed them. When the crowds realised that the defenders were heading straight for Horatian Castle, the symbolic seat of the Habsburgs in Prague and Bohemia, excitement and tensions reached a fever pitch. They burst through the castle's doors, were led upstairs by, some sources claim, a friendly Catholic Bohemian, and proceeded to make a very quick judgement call on who was guilty in the room and who was not. In the room were the now terrified regents Lobkovich, Sovata and Martinez. It seemed the defenders had burst into the room where the most important Habsburg regents in the country resided. Lobkovich. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Amazingly, managed to escape by pleading ignorance, innocence, and claiming to be someone else. Some sources say he did all three 
while others claim that the defenders were only truly aware of Slovata and Martinez, and that Lobkovich was a regent too behind the scenes of Habsburg Bohemia to be fully known to the defenders. This still fails to explain how Thurn, having become well accustomed to the Habsburg state in Bohemia, managed to let Lobkovich go, but the fact is he did go, and his two colleagues were not so lucky in getting away. Slavata and Martinez, the names and image of which were well known to all the defensers, could expect no mercy. But they were not stabbed to death by the mob. Instead, they were hoisted up into the air, carried across the room, and thrown out of the third-story window. Wedgwood captures the atmosphere of this event perfectly. Quote, A hundred hands dragged them towards the high window, flung back the casement, and hoisted them upwards. Martinez went first. Jesu Maria, help! he screamed, and crashed over the sill. Slavata fought harder, calling on the Blessed Virgin, and clawing at the window frame under a rain of blows, until someone knocked him unconscious, and the bleeding hands relaxed. (coughs) Their shivering secretary clung to the defensers for protection, but out of sheer intoxication, the crowd hoisted him up, and sent him to join his masters. One of the rebels leant over the ledge, jeering, We will see if your Mary can help you. A second later, between exasperation and amazement, By God, his Mary has helped! He exclaimed, for Martinez was already stirring. Suddenly, a ladder protruded from the neighbouring window. Martinez and the secretary made for it under a hail of misdirected missiles. Some of Silvata's servants, braving the mob, went down to his help and carried him after the others, unconscious but alive. End quote. The extraordinary chance that had saved the three lives was a holy miracle or a comic accident, according to the religion of the beholder, but it had no political significance. Indeed, live or die, what mattered was the event itself, and what the event represented to the Habsburgs. In any case, the throwing of the two regents out of the window of Harajin Castle in Prague was no empty gesture. It was loaded with historical as well as symbolic significance. It was not the first time the inhabitants of Prague had thrown agents of the government out of the window of a Prague dwelling. On July 30th, 1419, Hussite Czechs had rebelled against the government forces and their refusal to release their like-minded brethren from prison by throwing seven of their agents out of the windows of the new town hall of Prague. The agents, which included Prague's most senior judge, all died from the fall or from the attacks of the intoxicated crowd below. The event in 1419 precipitated the Hussite risings against the Bohemian crown, and the years that followed 1419 were rife with religious strife. David Sturdy notes the significance of the event in 1618 that represented the second defenestration of Prague, almost 200 years to the day of the first one. Quote, By this calculated and well-publicised gesture, the Protestant nobles signalled open resistance to Matthias and Ferdinand. The nobles nominated a provisional government headed by 36 directors. A few moderates hoped that the breach with Matthias and Ferdinand could be healed, but the chances of reconciliation were rendered even less likely by the fact that one week before these events in Prague, Ferdinand had been elected the King of Hungary. With the Hungarian crown secured, he was little disposed to compromise over Bohemia. End quote. The tone of the rebellion soon began to change. No longer were the rebels simply protesting in Bohemia, 
they were now taking very real steps to actually establish Bohemia as a separate entity of the HRE. They did this first reluctantly. Initially, the defenders claimed to be acting only in the interests of Matthias, which was in itself a kind of strange logic. Imagine coming home from a holiday to discover your flatmate had burned your apartment down. Don't worry, he tells you, I got rid of that plumber, he was doing a really bad job. You'd be furious, and understandably so. The problem was that the defensers believed Matthias and the regents were not one of the same. Certainly, by 1618 the regents were acting more in Ferdinand's council than Matthias's, but they were still acting in Matthias's. It seemed like all the defensers could do was pretend that they were not in fact rebelling against the Habsburg family. It certainly seems as though they did not want to go against Matthias, but time was running out for them. While they may not have wanted to kick out the Habsburgs, the issue of coming under the rule of Ferdinand was furiously contested. After the events of the 23rd of May 1618, it seemed to the Bohemians as though Ferdinand could not possibly be expected to rule them justly. Thus, this left the Bohemians in a dilemma. If Matthias died, which it looked very likely that he would do soon, and Ferdinand took over as was expected, then the defenders would be faced with the choice of openly rebelling against the Empire as a whole, or inviting Ferdinand back into their lands after all they'd done. With the news filtering in that Ferdinand had already contacted the Spanish Habsburgs, and that Matthias was on death's door, Thurn persuaded the directors that the only option open to them now was in fact full rebellion against the Habsburg hegemony of their lands. Ferdinand could never be trusted, especially after what happened in Prague, and the hated regent's influence could never be curbed without first ridding the city of the imperial flag. While the Bohemians spent the remainder of the year venturing down this path, in an almost sacrificial sense of inevitability, progress within the kingdom was in fact made surprisingly well, to the extent that by early 1619, Bohemia appeared to be under the military and civic control of the electors. Almost on cue then, Matthias died. Now all the Bohemians had was a state prepared for war against the man, Ferdinand, who was meant to be their king. It was highly anticipated that Ferdinand would try to return to claim his rebel kingdom back sometime soon. With nothing left to lose then, the Bohemian electors promoted their case, right into the courts of the major powers of Europe. The Bohemians were seeking to do the unthinkable, contest Ferdinand's election to their kingdom by a vote, and then elect a new king. The Bohemians' choice of their replacement king for Ferdinand was the opposite side of the political, religious and imperial spectrum altogether, because the Bohemians chose a man who would soon become the centre of debate. Historians like their debates. There's the Germany started it philosophy for the First World War. There's the America could have taken the Soviets actually theory for the Cold War. But the issue that historians specialising or even remotely interested in early modern Europe really like to debate is whether or not all the preceding violence that came from the Bohemian Acts the Thirty Years' War and its subsequent effects on Europe, can be traced back to one man, and his decision to accept the crown of the country that the newly rebellious populace were so eager to offer him. His name was Frederick V of the Palatinate.
Palatine, which we'll be hearing a lot about over the next few episodes, was in fact an elector of the HRE. This meant that, when it came time to decide on a new emperor, the Palatinate was one of the seven electors that got to vote. I wouldn't really call the Palatine a state in this case, because the Palatine, also called the Palatinate, also called the Palatine of the Rhine, was not really what we think of as a state today. In many ways, it's difficult to think of any of the states of the HRE in geographical terms. You, like me, would probably love to know where each prince was located in the Holy Roman Empire, so that when I talk about John George of Saxony, for example, you'll be able to picture his state and where he's going to have to march from in your head. However, I'm not really into doing that, and here's why. The Holy Roman Empire is just way too full of domains, cities, microstates, duchies, and imperial free cities to probably give you an adequate picture of where everything is. In many cases, it doesn't even make sense. Princes like Freddy here don't even rule over the lands that are connected to one another. He rules over the upper and lower Palatinate, but these two Palatinates are separate from each other on the map of the empire, and in between them would often be unfriendly territory. It was generally laid out like this because of inheritance over the years, though in many ways, this was the Achilles heel of the HRE. For the Habsburgs, by keeping the prince's domains scattered, it ensured that it was immensely difficult for one prince to rule over the other, or indeed, to usurp the Habsburgs. However, on the other hand, this also made the HRE very vulnerable to outside attack and hard to defend unless every prince was on the same page. And as we'll soon see, they pretty much never were. Therefore, as much as I'd love to spend an episode detailing a mind map of the HRE and where everyone is, all you really need to know is who the electors are and their names. Come on, Zack, just tell me roughly so I have a reasonable clue. Okay, fine, you've convinced me. So here's the rough guide to who's where in the HRE. If you imagine the HRE as a giant square, then Hasburg's Austrian hereditary homelands are in the bottom right corner, the Hohenzollerns Brandenburg, Prussia, is in the top right corner, Saxony is about in the centre, the electorate of the Palatinate, where Freddy came to rule over, is in between the top left and bottom left corner. The electorate of Bavaria is in between the bottom left and bottom right of the square. The elector of Mainz is in the bottom left corner. Who else is there? Well, you may not hear too much about them, but the electors of Cologne and Trier are both in about the top or middle left corner of the square. Imagine then that Denmark and its duchies of Schleswig and Holstein are jutting out of the top middle part of the square, but also spill out into the top part of the square a bit. The fact that Denmark's king owned this land, and thus had a seat in the Holy Roman Empire, will come in handy for him later. Oh finally, Hanover is just below the Danish lands, and Bohemia is a large swathe of territory in between the bottom right and top right part of the square. If that somehow didn't clear things up for you, you should really check out the blog, wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie. The maps on there will really help you guys figure this out, if you find visual aids more helpful. Having hopefully cleared that up then, let's move on. Frederick V of the Palatinate ruled over the upper and lower Palatinate regions. He had a seat as elector on the HRE, and could thus vote for the new emperor when election time came around. He was also leader of the Evangelical Union, the League of Protestant Princes of the Empire established in May 1608 under the leadership of Frederick IV, 
are Freddy's father. When Frederick IV died in 1610, Freddy inherited his father's electoral title as well as this leadership, so that by the time of his coming of age in 1614, he could claim a pretty important position in the HRE. As elector and as leader of a very effective lobby group that had the backing nationally of the majority of the empire's Protestant princes, and generally the tacit support of the Protestant states abroad. Frederick V was no stranger to the Bohemian Crisis by the time Matthias had died in March 1619. Indeed, he had been intervening militarily along with the Duke of Savoy to aid the undertrained Bohemian rebels in their cause, which Frederick really seems to have sympathised with. Directly after the defenestration, in May 1618, Kleisel had ensured that little action was taken directly against Bohemia, because Kleisel believed in compromise, while Ferdinand insisted on direct action immediately, and believed that any compromise in Bohemia would be seen as a sign of religious and political weakness by the Habsburg's enemies. But Matthias was still emperor in May 1618, and would be for the next 10 months, so Ferdinand, no doubt grudgingly, did not act out against Matthias's wishes. Matthias at this stage was too sick and feeble to conduct a proper policy, so left everything to Kleisel instead. This meant that Kleisel was effectively acting for Matthias during this time, and Ferdinand appears to have hated him for it. Added to Ferdinand's frustrations was the fact that he was busy in Hungary trying to persuade the Hungarian Diet to elect him as their king. While the complete lack of soldiers on both sides meant that, although Ferdinand couldn't act, Thurn and his defences in Bohemia couldn't either. This situation was changed by the first elements of outside interference coming from Frederick V and his Savoyard ally. During the summer of 1618, Bohemia had applied to join the Evangelical Union, and also commissioned the Count of Mansfield, a mercenary captain who had served Savoy in the previous years, to begin applying a level of professionalism to the levying of troops in Bohemia and a veteran regiment from Mansfield campaigns accompanied him to Bohemia, providing valuable experience to the disorganised rabble who were mustering there. Because of the application of Bohemia to join the Evangelical Union, Frederick felt compelled to offer further assistance. Geoffrey Parker notes that, quote, The Evangelical Union had allowed Charles Emmanuel of Savoy to raise a regiment of German troops the previous year. Now the Duke secretly offered to pay the same troops commanded by Count Ernest of Mansfield to fight for the Bohemians. Frederick of the Palatinate, who immediately recognised the directors as a legitimate government, also sent clandestine assistance. End quote. The result of this combined aid, while Ferdinand was busy elsewhere, was a military success. In November 1618, only a few months after the defenestration of Prague, the Bohemians and their associates captured the Catholic town of Pilsen in the south of Bohemia, with the result that morale was increased in Prague. The Bohemians continued to mass support, with the result that by late 1618, they were able to march on Vienna and besiege it. In December 1618, Bohemian rebels, the forces of Frederick, the Duke of Savoy and the Evangelical Union had been joined by Bethlen Gabor, the Prince of Transylvania, in their siege of Vienna, and during that time, reps from the Ottomans reached the besieging camp outside Vienna's walls. Although it appears incredible that Bohemian's situation could escalate so rapidly, and that the rabble behind it could advance their cause to the gates of Vienna in just under six months, appearances were deceptive, and this would prove to be the high point of the rebellion. Ferdinand had been very busy mobilising his own forces during this time and upon his election as King of Hungary in July 1618, he had arrested Kleisel and dared Matthias to object. 
Ferdinand, now acting as though Matthias had died, began to also act as Bohemia's king. As Pages explains, quote, So Ferdinand took Matthias's place just as the latter had once taken the place of Rudolf. This coincided with the outbreak of hostilities in Bohemia. End quote. Bethlen Gabor of Transylvania had to withdraw his support and the Ottomans theirs when they learned of Sigismund of Poland's invasion of Hungary in support of his brother-in-law Ferdinand. Although Poland would pay the price for this act against the Ottomans in 1620 with a full-scale Turkish invasion of their lands, it provided Vienna and thus the Habsburgs with the invaluable breathing space that they needed. Frederick soon began to have problems of his own though, specifically with the Evangelical Union. Contrary to his expectations, the Union did not as a whole wish to continue its support of his ventures with the Bohemian rebels. Wedgwood explains their stance. Quote, the princes of the Union took discretion to be the better part of valour, and indignantly repudiated all that had been done. They did not wish to pay Mansfield or enter into any understanding with the rebels. They absolutely refused to raise a joint army at Frederick's suggestion, and they established their impartiality by publishing a memorial exhorting both the emperor and his subjects to compromise. End quote. Frederick was astonished. There is strong evidence to suggest that Freddy himself might not have been aware that in fact the Union was not protesting against Bohemian intervention per se, but they were protesting against what they saw as Frederick's true intention, the seizure of the Bohemian crown. And thus we come back to the debate on Freddy's character. Although Freddy did in time come to accept the Bohemian crown, debate persists as to whether Freddy had planned to become King of Bohemia all along, and whether he really was as hesitant to accept the crown as some historians paint him to be. How can he not know whether or not he wants the crown if he's actively pursuing it, you might be wondering. Well that brings us to the next important chap, Frederick's Chancellor, and the man who many hold responsible for setting the subsequent chain of events in motion. Christian, Prince of Anhalt. Frederick was 21 years old. He had neither the experience in international affairs, nor the pragmatism to know the realities of the European courts. What he did know was that Christian of Anhalt, a long-standing statesman in the service of the Palatine, did have these qualities, and thus Christian could not be replaced. It seems then that it was Christian who really wanted to see Freddy hold the elector of the Palatinate and King of Bohemia. Such a hold on power would seriously alter the makeup of the empire electorally. Even though Bohemia was majority Protestant, its vote was normally made by the Catholic would-be emperor who was its king, and the would-be emperor already voted for anyone but himself. If Freddie managed to stop this though, he could seriously alter the HRE's religious and political balance of votes in the electoral college. Simply put, if Freddie became king of Bohemia and held his titles in the Palatine, Protestants would then have four votes when it came time to elect an emperor, while the Catholics would only have three. This could in theory have dramatically altered the history of the empire and Europe as a whole. The Habsburgs could be toppled from their pride of place in the empire, and their system of marriages around Europe would come crashing down. This, more than anything else, is the image that seems to have motivated Christian of Anhalt to act in the way that he did. The histories vary on their view of exactly how much Frederick knew about Christian's plans, what Frederick did once he found out was make the decision in early November 1619 to accept the Bohemian crown. 
just how much persuading Freddy needed to accept the crown, and just how much he hesitated in between. On August 19th, 1619, when Bohemia decided it was going to elect a new king and depose Ferdinand, is largely irrelevant. According to Wedgwood at least, Freddy was more interested in proving to Ferdinand that the Protestant elements of the HRE would not be pushed around. Quote, his suggestion was that the Union should take an army and persuade the Elector of Saxony to join them in a protest to the Emperor Matthias. He hoped in this way to show that the Protestants of Germany were united, and were, in the last resort, prepared to use force. Once this was evident to the Emperor, Frederick assumed that there would be no actual necessity to appeal to arms. Protestantism in Bohemia would be guaranteed, and significant warning would be issued against any future attempt at coercion in Germany itself. End quote. If you want to play the blame game, Freddy and Christian can be held equally responsible for different reasons. I feel it is necessary to look at all involved in this case though, because as much as the Bohemians could not fully agree on whether they wanted to rid their country of Habsburg influence until the 19th of August 1619, they almost certainly would not have acted so drastically had they felt Ferdinand would have treated them with any modicum of toleration and Ferdinand's actions over the coming decade appear to confirm their fears. That's not to suggest that being afraid of Ferdinand excuses the Bohemian Diet for removing the Habsburg influence altogether, but one should not underestimate the real fear that the Bohemians had of Ferdinand. And as we've seen, Ferdinand's previous actions in Styria, and his methods up to that point when dealing with the Bohemians, hardly satiated their fears. Whether the Bohemians were justified in taking that step then is a question I'll leave up to you to solve. But let me assure you that all the histories present Frederick not as someone who wanted to wage war in Europe for 30 years, but as someone who wanted the crown of Bohemia for the same reason Ferdinand wanted it. Power. Let us not be fooled by the religious messages both sides would profligate. The Union were able to see through Christian of Anhalt's propaganda on saving Protestantism in Bohemia just as the Bohemians appeared able to see into Ferdinand's true plans for Bohemia itself. Whatever their responsibility for starting the Thirty Years' War, by the end of the 1620s I'm sure you'll come to agree with my analysis that Ferdinand was the real problem here. Political events soon ran parallel to the religious issues of the Empire, as the imperial election over the summer of 1619 demonstrated. Upon Matthias's death in March of 1619, the HRE needed a new emperor, and Ferdinand was the only member of his house eligible for election. His backing was guaranteed by the Spanish from the Onet Treaty and Louis XIII in France, who remained distracted by events at home and had not yet come to realise the implications of Ferdinand's succession. On the day of his election, on the 28th of August 1619, the Catholic electors voted for Ferdinand without a hitch. The electors of Brandenburg and Saxony, not willing to risk it all, reluctantly did the same. When it came the turn of the Palatine reps to give their vote, they had chosen the Duke of Bavaria, but also claimed they would support the majority. They had added that latter part of their speech because they were the first to vote, and rumours had been rampant regarding numerous additional candidates and dissension within the Habsburg camp. No such dissension materialised though and the Palatine reps then had to inform Frederick V that they had just approved the candidature of the man whom Frederick was considering deposing in Bohemia. Only now, because of the election, Frederick would not just be acting to depose the King of Bohemia, 
He would now be acting against what had been the majority decision of the reps who had elected Ferdinand Emperor, and against the imperial authority of the Habsburgs themselves. Rebellion was consuming the Protestant lands of the Habsburgs at this stage. In Upper Austria, the Protestant estates there had thrown their lot in with the Bohemians, while in Bohemia itself, a new constitution had been drawn up in July 1619, whereby Silesia, Moravia and Lusadia would join Bohemia in a confederate union. It was not a rosy process for the now rebel states, as the removal of the Habsburg authority had meant the breakdown in state administration, from a Bohemian diet only able to concern itself with the military situation. Wedgwood tells us that, on March 27, 1619, before all the events of the election, Ferdinand had, quote, offered oblivion, indemnity, and the confirmation of their privileges if the rebels would both submit themselves to his mercy. Distressed as they were, the estates could not bring themselves to trust him. End quote. Frederick withdrew to his court with the news that he would now have to undertake a serious decision against his emperor or leave Bohemia out in the cold. Frederick was well connected both by marriage and blood. His wife was an English princess, and his mother was the daughter of William the Silent from the Netherlands. And this had been part of the reason Christian of Anhalt had seen the situation so positively for Freddy in the months before. Sturdy echoes Christian's positivity, bordering on naivety. Quote, In his imagination, the Dutch, the English, and the Huguenots were ready to supply men and money for the cause. Savoy and Venice would block the Alpine routes, while the Evangelical Union confined the army of Flanders within Flanders. The Austrian estates would unite with Bohemia in rebellion against the Habsburgs, and the Elector Palatine would not only become King of Bohemia, but also ensure the election of a Protestant Emperor. End quote. As we'll soon see next time, though, the international situation more than negated Christians' imagined Protestant unity. While the Habsburgs across Europe and Spain, and to a lesser extent in Poland, were beginning to respond to Ferdinand's calls with a new level of duty, once his election as Ferdinand II was approved on the 28th of August 1619. September was thus decision time for Frederick, because he now had to face another Evangelical Union meeting on the 12th of that month, and here again, the disapproval from all sides as to the policy he appeared to be leaning towards. Wedgwood notes, quote, On the 12th of September, the Union met at Rothenburg, where the deputies, with few exceptions, advised Frederick to not meddle with Bohemia. Anhalt's allies were equally intractable. The Duke of Savoy, indignant that neither the imperial nor the Bohemian crown had been secured for him, threatened to withdraw all help, and the Venetians declined to invest their money in so crazy a venture. The Prince of Orange, it was true, urged Frederick forward, but the recent internal revolution in the provinces, which had ended in the temporary extinction of the anti-Orange party and made Morris virtually dictator, was not yet complete, and the government was still weak. The King of England had not ceased to deplore the policy of his son-in-law ever since the revolt began. From Hungary, Bethlen Gabor sent cordial messages of encouragement, but only a rash man would trust so variable an ally. End quote. Wedgwood portrays Freddy as mulling over the decisions in his own time, with the choice of abandoning the people of Bohemia or going against his emperor weighing heavily in his mind. Wedgwood also notes the effects this had on another prince of the empire, Maximilian of Bavaria, who had wanted to broker peace between the Catholic League, of which he was the leader, 
and the Evangelical Union, of which Freddy was the leader. Freddy's acceptance of the crown of Bohemia meant that his prospects changed. Now he wanted to use the Catholic League to remove Freddy, and replace him with Ferdinand to prove to the Emperor just how useful the Catholic League could be. In the time he took to develop this plan though, it appears as though a combination of feelings, be they jealousy or simple ambition, managed to persuade Maximilian that the best course of action for him would not be to just simply replace Freddy with Ferdinand in Bohemia, but to assume Frederick's imperial electorate title when he did so. G. Pages sees it in a different light, although he does note that Ferdinand made a verbal promise to transfer Frederick's electoral title to Max of Bavaria once Freddy had been defeated. Ferdinand had been coaxed into this agreement, Pages tells us, because Max's army under the Catholic League, quote, had become indispensable to him, end quote, although he refused to write the agreement down on paper since he knew full well of its scandalous nature, should anyone discover it. My other source, David Sturdy, portrays Frederick as willing to accept the crown of Bohemia only once he had been persuaded that he could militarily wrest it and defend it from Ferdinand's grip. According to Sturdy, Christian of Anhalt played a key part in this persuasion. Quote, Christian promised that if war broke out, the Evangelical Union would provide troops and money. He also reminded Frederick that assistance might be forthcoming from Protestant states such as England and the Dutch Republic. Other circumstances favoured Frederick. By now, Ferdinand was facing a crisis in Hungary akin to that of Bohemia. If Frederick and Bethlen Gabor could coordinate their campaigns, there seemed every possibility that Ferdinand would lose both crowns. After pondering these factors, Frederick decided to accept the Bohemian crown. He announced his decision on the 28th of September. With his wife and entourage, he travelled to Prague, where he was crowned king on the 4th of November, 1619. End quote. Fascinatingly, and this is what I love discovering when I have different sources, David Milland presents Frederick's acceptance of the crown in an entirely different light. He writes that his acceptance was a foregone conclusion because, quote, the Palatinate had been for over 60 years a declared enemy of the Habsburgs and the Catholic Church. With Anhalt at his shoulder, Frederick was unlikely to forego the opportunity to strike a blow against both. End quote. What is most interesting, though, is that in the other sources I have, the English and Dutch, the two allies Freddy was told he needed and could get, are portrayed as apathetic or too busy to help Freddy in his plans. But Milan does not at all follow this common theme. Although the English under James I are still presented as opposed to the Bohemian Revolt as a whole, and James I, according to Milan, quote, declared the Bohemians to be rebels, the election illegal, and advised Frederick not to accept the crown, end quote. The Dutch were supposedly positively emphatic about Freddie accepting the crown. And not only that, but Maurice of Nassau, the de facto dictator of the Netherlands, was, quote, indeed angry at Frederick's hesitation, and told his agent that, with the truce about to expire, he wanted to see the Habsburgs challenged by strong enemies, and hoped that Frederick would not lack vigour in defending his title, end quote. The alliance between the Dutch and Freddy that no other source even mentions, in fact most claim the Dutch were annoyed that Freddy had left Bohemia and left their flank thus open to the Spanish, was further solidified by increased subsidies and by the decision to conduct the coronation service for Freddy in both Dutch and Czech. By far the most incredible of these accounts by Milan is the next one. Quote, 
In addition to its monthly subsidy of 50,000 florins, the States General guaranteed the Bohemian government a loan of 200,000 florins and declared that it would make war on any prince who openly challenged Frederick's ascension. This warning, as Albert reported to Philip III in November 1619, effectively ensured the neutrality of the Catholic League, whose members were not so devoted to the Habsburgs that they would risk the invasion from the Dutch of their own territories. In addition, the Dutch tried to force James I's hand, threatening to cancel their support for his son-in-law unless he did something to help. But James steadfastly refused to be drawn. End quote. This narrative continues to surprise by Milan, as he explains the moves of an apparently belligerent and highly active Dutch Republic in foreign affairs, going so far as to contact Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden so that Sweden could invade Poland and thus prevent the Polish king Sigismund from invading Hungary and forcing Bethlen Gabor to withdraw from Vienna. Geoffrey Parker portrays Frederick's decision as one motivated by the need to act quickly, while Bethlen Gabor was tearing it up in Hungary, and because he believed, quote, My opportunity is a divine calling that I must not disobey. My only end is to serve God and his church. End quote. Freddie accepted the crown of Bohemia, Parker states, quote, without receiving any formal response from either London or The Hague. End quote. Peter Wilson, then, strikes a pen through the common misconceptions regarding Freddie's decision, such as being forced to accept by his English wife, and that Christian of Anhalt was motivated because of the investments he had in the Upper Palatine and their business with Bohemia. Wilson simply states that Freddie's decision, quote, combined a heady mix of long-standing dynastic ambitions with a conviction that God had summoned Frederick as his instrument on earth, end quote. What is, perhaps, the most chilling and prophetic of all my sources on the subject is found in Geoffrey Parker's quotation of the Archbishop of Cologne. Upon learning that there would be this dual election, of Ferdinand as the Holy Roman Emperor, and Frederick as King of Bohemia, he warned, quote, Then let everyone prepare, at once, for a war lasting twenty, thirty, or forty years. The Spaniards and the House of Austria will deploy all their possessions to recover Bohemia. Indeed, the Spaniards would rather lose the Netherlands than allow their dynasty to lose control of Bohemia so disgracefully and so outrageously. End quote. My sources, then, do not arrive at a general consensus. None directly blame Freddie for his acceptance of the crown, but seek to rationalise it as I have done, with religious, political or moral explanations. The point is, while I would rather have spent this episode looking at what everyone in Europe thought of Freddie, I can do that next time. Trust me, there will be no shortage of diplomacy over the next batch of episodes, because after Bohemia, nothing anybody does in Europe is done without somebody else noticing, and usually reacting. For this episode though, I really wanted to set the scene and properly establish the reasons for the Thirty Years' War in their initial form. I, for one, do not believe that you can point to Frederick's decision to accept the Bohemian crown as the cause of the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War itself was a morass of different conflicts tied together in the convenient tag of a Thirty Years' War, but it was not a war lasting for thirty continuous years between Bohemia and the Habsburgs, so such lamentations on whether or not Freddie accepted the crown for reason A or B is not important. What is important is the events that followed. Frederick of the Palatinate may have given cause to the Bohemian rebels and provided them with a symbolic leader, but he did not continue the war for the next 30 years, and to blame him for that seriously lets off some pretty irresponsible people further down the line for the parts they played in prolonging the conflict. 
In short, I hope I did the defenestration of Prague justice. And I hope you appreciate the amount of sources too. I really have to raid the UCD library for those. So give the bibliography on the blog a look if you want to track them down, while you're looking at the helpful maps I've provided so you can track everything else. So that's it then. Now you know why the Thirty Years' War started. Kind of. What you don't know, and what is a story that I find even more interesting than this one, is why the war continued. So I hope you'll join me next time as we look at Frederick, and why he would soon come to be known as the Winter King. That concludes this episode for today, folks. Thanks so much to Nicholas, John, and Alfred for their donations, and I'll talk to you soon. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to the When Diplomacy Fell special on the Thirty Years' War, episode 25.3, Fenestrating Prague. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 